Amen. He is worthy of his name indeed. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel chapter 4. And we're spending the next two weeks in Daniel chapter 4. Just an update on our front row boys. Uh, we usually have 12 sitting in the eight chairs. This morning we only had eight up here sitting in the, in the front, but they were still in six chairs for some reason. So that's the update on them. They got to step it up next week. Like I said, we're going to be in, uh, spending the next two weeks in Daniel chapter 4, but first I just wanted to reiterate uh, something that Pastor Craig was talking about in the announcement time uh, with what is the next phase of the Foundations Discipleship Hour. Uh, so Chris, do we have that slide? Uh, we can uh, put that up. I will talk and uh, hopefully it goes up. But uh, So uh, as uh, many of you may hopefully know because you take everything that is said in church and you internalize it and you never forget it. And that's what I appreciate so much about our church, especially you, Jenna Crouch. I really appreciate the way you just cling to everything that is said. And um, so one of the things that we talked about is that uh, the Foundations Discipleship Hour uh, takes place, it's two-month cycles. And so we are right now in our two-month discipleship class cycle. It takes place from 9.15 to 10.15 on Sunday mornings. And so our hope is is that uh, the slide's not working, so we're just going to picture uh, what I'm saying, uh, which you guys, again, will be able to do an amazing job about. So, uh, so it go, takes place in two-month cycles. So we're in the class cycle right now. Starting in November, we're going to move into the life group cycle. The life group cycle means that we're going to meet in life groups at the same time from 9.15 to 10.15 in the morning. The same children's programming that is going on currently will continue to, to happen during this time. And so what we said, uh, uh, like we said many times, we're our hope and our prayer is that our church, the members of our church, will develop the habit of coming at 9.15 uh, for that discipleship hour and then staying for our hour uh, of worship. And so we are in the class cycle right now that's going to end in October, and then we're going to move into the life group cycle. And so what we need to do that, especially for the first time, uh, there might be some hiccups trying to get this up and going, but we need everyone uh, to sign up and, uh, and fill out a form. So we'll send an email out with those forms, uh, and uh, this week, earlier this week, and so uh, if you will sign up on the form and just let us know you want to be in a life group, and then if there is anyone you want to be in a life group with, there'll be a spot to write that down as well, but then we will kind of place those. So right now we have four classes that meet in different parts of the buildings. We imagine there'll probably be eight to ten or so life groups that are going to meet, uh, so smaller groups. Uh, has nothing to do with what class you're in now. It's totally separate, uh, and those will meet uh, throughout the building as well. We're going to get creative with our use of space here, because we're going to be using every single room that the Lord has blessed us with, and we're, we're so grateful for the space that we have. So anyway, so hopefully that makes sense. We'll be sending out more information, but we're going to need you to sign up uh, for life groups. But the same kids stuff that has been going on, which has been going amazing, and for those of you who have served already, or who are serving in this Foundations Discipleship Hour with the kids especially, uh, we are just so grateful for the way that you've done that to give so many people in our church an opportunity uh, to take part in these classes. And not only just doing childcare to help other people, their parents take part in the classes, but you are pouring into these kids every single week. So for those who are in the Foundations Hour, for those who are working uh, in, during the service uh, in Rock Prairie Kids, we're just so grateful for, for all of you who are doing that. So anyways, uh, hopefully that makes sense, uh, and hopefully if it doesn't make sense now, it will make sense over the coming weeks. Um, so that, uh, all that to say, um, hope that you are able to take part in our life group cycle once that starts in November. And also what Pastor Craig said was we will be, uh, if you're not a member of our 
our church, you'll have an opportunity to take the new members class. Uh, and uh, hopefully, if, like I said, if you're not a member, you will take part in that. That will happen during the first four weeks of the life group cycle. And then we will then create a life group out of those who take the new members class and they can meet the rest of the time uh, together. Okay. That's all I have in terms of announcements. Uh, We're going to be in Daniel chapter 4. I'm excited to get into it this morning, so please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father God, you um, you are so good to us. We are so um, just in awe of the ways that you move and you work. This last week you have worked in your sovereign ways and ways that Many of us, none of us could have expected and in each of our lives, and you continue to do that, Lord. So we confess we don't know what the week ahead will hold, but we know who holds it. And so, Lord, as we are here in this moment together now that we've set aside to worship you, I pray that you would be near to each of us and we would cling to you today, but that today would not be the only day that we cling to you, God. As we go home, as we go about our week, Lord, that we would remember that you are the Savior, that you are are in control, that you are on the throne. Lord, that you would have grace for us in the moments that we forget that and that we sin and decide to go our own way. Lord, I pray for our time in Daniel chapter 4, that you would use it to speak into our hearts, just like Pastor David said, may we have softened hearts to hear what you have to say, God. You are so good, we pray in Jesus' name. We thank you, amen. Faithfulness in Babylon. That is the theme of the first half of the book of Daniel. How can we remain faithful to God in a culture whose values often come in direct conflict with the truth of God's word? What does it mean to be faithful in Babylon. We've seen that in the first three chapters already. Throughout our time in the first three chapters, the main character of Daniel has kind of shifted, you might have noticed. The first couple chapters focused on Daniel himself, how he took bold stands for the Lord, which led him to being promoted to being one of the top advisors in Babylon. And then chapter 3 focused on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their refusal to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's uh, giant golden image. And now, in chapter 4, the main character changes again. In fact, it's testimony time in Daniel chapter 4. Somebody new has a story to share about God's faithfulness. Now, it shouldn't be surprising that it is really important to share testimonies of God's faithfulness when you're in Babylon. We should be sharing our stories with one another. Testimonies can be one of the most powerful ways for people who are struggling to be hopeful, who are struggling to be hopeful, to find hope in their situation. I can think back on times in my life when I was struggling and when I heard a story of God's work in somebody else's life, it really spurred me on that much more to trust in him. In fact, I just want to say, if any of you have a story that you think would be worth sharing with the church, I would love to sit down with you and hear your story and talk about uh, you doing that because I think it's so important and so valuable. And we do that every once in a while. We hear stories from one another in the body, but I think that's so valuable. And so uh, I'd love to talk to you if you feel like you have a story that can be encouraging to your brothers and sisters in Christ. But testimonies are so important. I think they're even more powerful when they come from an unexpected source. When someone who in the world's eyes 
would consider, people would consider to be too far gone, quote unquote, shares about how they came to recognize their need for a savior, how the grace of God came in and changed their hearts. And really, when you hear those stories, it's a reminder to us that God doesn't use the same categories to view people that we do, does he? God sees a totally different way than we see. And so we, when we hear stories like that, it's a reminder of God's unchanging grace. And J- Daniel chapter 4 tells us of a surprising testimony. This testimony comes from one of the most unexpected sources possible. The testimony of God's grace comes from none other than the king of Babylon. So let's look and see what happens and what the testimony is, starting in Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. He says, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. It seemed good for me to show, share a testimony of what the one true God has done in my life. And he goes on, how great are his signs, how, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So the story starts with an introduction. Nebuchadnezzar is giving praise to God. And when I first read this, I assumed this was Nebuchadnezzar giving praise to God based on what had happened in Daniel chapter 3. But it's actually, this introductory section to Daniel chapter 4 has nothing to do with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace at all. In fact, I'm pretty sure, not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure that this is a different Nebuchadnezzar altogether. So this is actually another king who came after Nebuchadnezzar of Daniel chapters 1 through 3, who is also called Nebuchadnezzar, which just makes it nice and confusing for us. But this is my best understanding. This is a different Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who is giving a testimony about what is about to happen to him in chapter 4. So he's kind of like, we start at the end of the story. It's kind of like in a movie. I'm not a movie person, so I always struggle when I come up with like movie examples in my head I've struggled with that so it's kind of like you ever seen a movie where like it opens the first scene as like a main character the main character who's just in a crazy situation right we, so we open on a guy who's in like a purple bear costume running through the mall from like a pack of clowns on tricycles that are like chasing him as fast as they can behind him and then it's like a, a so put yourself there and then it's like a freeze frame and then it says like I suppose you're wondering how I got in this situation right and then it kind of rewinds and then goes back and explains of all the events that led up to him being in the purple bear costume being chased by clowns. This is not a real movie. This is, I do not claim the rights to that idea. If anyone wants to take that and run with it, uh, go right ahead. So uh, that's what happened. We, we read a testimony from the king of Babylon who says, I found it good to explain all the amazing signs and wonders of God. And what we think is, how in the world is this guy giving a testimony to the grace of God. So that's the first few verses, and now what happens is we rewind and start at the beginning, and he explains the story, the story that will take us a couple of weeks to get through the whole story. But that, we're, that's what is happening. So look with me at verse 4, which is now the beginning of the story. He says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. We've heard that before. 
As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me, so I made a decree, we've heard this before, that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. So just like his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, new Nebuchadnezzar, has a troubling dream. And again, like his predecessor, he brings all the wise men in. To explain it, he doesn't demand that they tell him what the dream was like in Daniel chapter 2, but he just wants them to tell him what it means. So they come in, and he tells them the dream. So let's skip down to verse 10, and we're going to hear what the dream was. Verse 10, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. It was a really tall tree. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, a tree that's so tall that no matter where you are on the earth, you can see it. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. So that was the dream. If you zoned out there for a second, sometimes, it's okay. Sometimes you zone out when someone's reading long passages of Scripture. No, again, no one in this room, but maybe someone watching online zoned out. So this is what the dream was. Basically, he dreamed there's this giant tree that you can see over the whole earth, and the fruit from the tree is feeding uh, all the creatures on the earth. And then this heavenly being comes down and demands that the tree be cut down and all the branches cut off and the tree just humiliated and turned into a stump. And then somehow that stump would have like the mind of an animal for a certain period of time. And all this would be done to show how the Most High was the one who ruled over the earth. So Nebuchadnezzar, that's his dream. And he calls in, just like old Nebuchadnezzar, he calls in all the wise men, all these people he keeps on the payroll for just a time like this, right? And he calls them in and he explains the dream to them. And every single one of them goes, uh, we have no idea what that dream means. Now, this is funny to me because, contrast this with Daniel chapter 2, other Nebuchadnezzar asked all the wise men to tell him what his dream was and what it meant, which was impossible, right? No one can do that. If I wake up and tell Emily, hey, I had a dream last night, tell me what it was. She can't do that, right? So that was impossible. However, in Daniel chapter 4, he's told them what the dream was. He just wants to know what it means, This dream is not that complicated. (laughs) They probably could have figured it out, what it meant. There's a really tall tree that feeds everybody. It's the most powerful tree in the whole earth, and it's going to get cut down. Hmm, most powerful king in the whole earth. 
I have no idea what that dream could mean, right? Like if, let's say you uh, worked for the president and uh, he, come, he calls you into the Oval Office and he, says, he tells you, he said, I had a dream last night that I was sitting at the Resolute desk about to sign my most important legislation uh, and all of a sudden I got hit by lightning and I died. What do you think that dream means? Hmm, I have no idea, <laughs> right? Like these wise men could have figured it out that Nebuchadnezzar was the tree and he was going to get cut down. Do you think they felt good about telling him that that's probably what his dream meant? No. Good job. There was somebody, somebody's with me. Good job. No, they did not feel good. Uh, you tell Nebuchadnezzar, actually, Nebuchadnezzar, this dream means that uh, you're going to get humiliated. Uh, this is probably not going to take too kindly to that. So there are high stakes here, right? Probably, this, this dream is troubling Nebuchadnezzar, right? Which means he probably knows what the dream actually means, but he's, maybe he's looking for a, a different alternative, right? Oh, maybe it means something different. That's why I need to call in my wise men to, to let me know that this has nothing to do with me. All the wise men chicken out is what happens. But Daniel, once again, does not chicken out. And so once all the wise men can't answer him what the dream means, Nebuchadnezzar calls on Daniel to explain the dream. Look at verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. So remember, Daniel went by the name Belteshazzar. That was the new name he was given in Babylon. And he hears the dream, and Daniel is immediately troubled, as again you would be if you were called to deliver bad news to somebody who with a, just a blink of an eye could call for your execution, right? He was troubled, and his thoughts alarmed him. He realizes in a sense, that he's going to have to play the role of a prophet to the king and let this king know that he's going to face judgment from God if he doesn't repent. This is not a fun message to deliver. So now for the fourth time in four chapters, we see God's people in Babylon through no, a situation that none of them asked for are called to potentially put their life on the line in order to remain faithful to God. Let's see what he does. So the king tries to comfort him. Verse 19, the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. So Belteshazzar, Daniel, answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, in which there was fruit, food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of heaven lived. He says, It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. 
You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. All these things are going to come upon you. Verse 26, as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed to you from that time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, this is key verse, verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening, perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. That's our passage this morning. He tells him the dream. He tells him what it means, and he tells, calls him to repent. So let's talk about what we see here. I'm going to see five truths in this passage. First, we see a somewhat uncomfortable truth, that it's possible to mistake earthly pleasure for God's blessing. It is possible to look around and feel like everything is going great and then say, well, God must be blessing me. And that can actually be the farthest thing from the truth. That's the first thing we notice in this story. Nebuchadnezzar is at ease. He's prospering. He's happy. He's just chilling, as the youths say. Life is dope. It's lit. I asked uh, Sam Hummerkaus for some words for helping me to kind of you know, connect with the next generation. And so I'm connected with you now, so feel connected. Life is good for King Nebuchadnezzar, or at least he thinks it is, right? But there's something lingering that he's not aware of, and that is the insidious sin of his pride. And so I think the first lesson for us comes right out of verse 4, which is that it's possible for a little while to be content and even prosperous in your sin and not recognize that you are on a path that is not pleasing to God. It is possible to mistake fleeting pleasure for God's blessing, not recognizing that God could take it away at any moment. I had a conversation uh, in our life group this week with somebody in our group about uh, a personality test kind of thing you can take, and we both have the same personality, which is kind of a personality that feels like uh, like imminent disaster is going to come at any moment, and uh, you better watch out. And if things are going good, like don't worry, like di- like disaster is going to come and mess it all up. Like so, like wired in me is this kind of feeling of just because things are going good now doesn't mean it's all going to not go. That doesn't mean it's not going to go bad in the future. So I need to be careful that I don't let my like, innate, almost pessimism, <laughs> color this passage. And yet I do think that there is a, a truth in this as we see Nebuchadnezzar sitting and prospering and looking out in his kingdom and thinking, wow, life is really good for me. I am powerful. I am number one. And nobody can stop me. And yet what he didn't know is uh, the old saying that we know, pride goes before what? The fall. So we do need to be careful. We don't need to always think life is just doom and gloom ahead of us, right? We trust the Lord. We trust his sovereignty. God doesn't just punish us for no reason because he feels like we're too happy. But we also need to be careful not to say, just because things are going well for me now, that must mean by definition I am pleasing the Lord. Does that make sense? So we need to be careful. That's the first thing we see is that we can't, we need to be careful not to mistake just our earthly pleasure for God's blessing. And that leads us right to point number two, which is that sometimes God gives us a warning sign 
And that's his grace. Meaning sometimes God comes in and messes up our happy little kingdom in ways that don't feel good. But when he does that, that is his grace. It is a blessing. God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream, and that dream made him anxious. His perfect life wasn't so perfect anymore, and the truth is we need that sometimes. He gives Nebuchadnezzar a warning sign because he had a pride issue. We'll talk about that in a bit. And left unchecked, like many kings, I'm sure, before him, if this pride issue was left unchecked, he would have lived his whole life thinking that nothing would, was wrong. And then he would have died and would have had a major surprise. But God, in his grace, gave him a warning sign. And that warning sign didn't feel good. And church, we need to know that sometimes gives, God gives us warning signs that don't feel good. Doesn't he? I've got to be honest, if I could map out my life from here on out and just say, this is what's going to happen in my life, and if I could be in sovereign control of that, I wouldn't include much adversity, right? I wouldn't include much difficulty. I wouldn't, certainly wouldn't include any kind of U-turns from God of when I'm going one way and then he redirects me a different way. I wouldn't include anything that messed up the way I want to build my kingdom. But we have a father who disciplines his children because he loves them. Every man a warrior, guys, you know this verse full well. No discipline is pleasant at the time, but, say it, painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it, right? So it's also possible to miss the warning sign. Nebuchadnezzar actually misses this warning sign that is God's grace to him. And it's only a second, much more painful, much more difficult warning sign that finally gets his attention. Sometimes here are people who have sadly made one terrible decision after another and find themselves in a place when they've lost almost everything in their life. And to, to a person, you just hear them say, man, I just wish I would have listened to the Lord sooner. So if you're hearing this morning and you know that the Lord has given you a warning sign, that's coming in and maybe messing up the way that you're trying to orient your perfect kingdom. If God's coming in and stirring that up and messing that up, see that as a sign of his grace and listen. Even if that warning sign is like this sermon right now, like you came in feeling real good, but God is revealing to you in your heart that there's something that's got to change. Listen to that. No discipline is pleasant. If it doesn't feel good, it probably means that God's working on you. So don't ignore it. Our first, we just want to push those things away, right? Just push those unpleasant feelings to the side. But it is far better to listen and turn than to ignore God's grace in discipline and then find yourself in a much worse position later on. Sometimes God gives us a warning sign, like he did Nebuchadnezzar here, and that is his grace. Nebuchadnezzar missed it. And it got worse for him before it got better. Don't miss the warning sign that he's giving you maybe right now. Third, you see in this passage that sometimes we're called to speak boldly. Sometimes we're called to speak boldly. Daniel hears the dream. He's immediately faced with a predicament, isn't he? 
Is Daniel going to tell him really what the dream means and risk his life? And maybe he thought that was a death sentence in and of itself. Says he was troubled when he heard what the dream was that he had to interpret. Maybe he just thought, I'm going to say this, and then that's going to be the, these are going to be the last earthly words I say. Is he going to tell him the dream? Or is he going to try to make the dream sound less offensive than it actually was or pretend that he doesn't understand it like the other wise men, right? All the other wise men just pretended that they had no idea who that tall tree could have possibly been. But not Daniel. And that's a temptation I think that every single one of us faces at times. We can be tempted to modify the content of the gospel to try to make it sound less offensive. And worse than we can even be tempted to like believe false things about the gospel so that we don't have to reckon with some of the more difficult truths. Survey recently came out about what evangelical Christians believe. And one of the findings was that more than half, 53%, Disagree with the claim that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. So the claim, which is orthodox Christianity, that the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. 53% of evangelical Christians disagreed with that. And that's really sad. Because this is one of the foundational doctrines of our faith. We believe and we agree with scripture that the wages of sin is death. Because... When we sin, we're sinning against a holy God. And even when we sin in ways that we in our mind view as small, that is a big deal to God, which means then there's a big punishment to pay. And this is the beauty of the gospel, that Christ paid that punishment for us, right? The gospel isn't great if we don't understand the punishment that we deserve for our sin. But Christ died the death that we deserved so that we can live in him. And so we need to make sure to preserve the integrity of the gospel that we don't shy away from things that can be seen as offensive or difficult doctrines. Another finding of that survey was that uh, uh, Almost half of evangelical Christians believe that God accepted worship from all different religions. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a hard truth, but it is the truth. So we need to make sure we do not blunt the offense of the gospel to try to make it more palatable for people. Now, as having said that, we also need to be clear that some people then will take that to the extreme, say, great, I get to be a jerk for Jesus. Where's the, where's the tables in the temple that I can flip over just to make a big scene because those people are wrong and I'm right? That is not at all, church, that is not at all how we're called to live either. Thankfully, I don't see that in our church. But I do see that, I, I, that idea, certainly. People thinking, well, because I need to preserve the content of the gospel, I need to do that by whatever means necessary, even if it's just so off-putting to people around me. We're called to be winsome. The Apostle Paul says that he became all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. Someone in our church texted me the other week, it's, it's about never changing the content of the gospel, but we modify its communication. You see that? 
so that it can be heard and understood. We see that all throughout the Apostle Paul and all throughout the book of Acts. So sometimes we're called to speak boldly. And when we are called to speak boldly, we need to thread this really difficult needle of making sure we're not shying away from the truth and also speaking that truth in love. And that's really what it comes down to. If your heart motivation for protecting the truth is anything but love, guess what? You're a clanging gong or a crashing cymbal. You speak in the tongue of men and angels and you have not love. You're nothing. That's what the Apostle Paul says. So the motivation of the right expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ is love for God and love for neighbor. Amen? Amen. Number four, there is no room for pride in God's kingdom. The fourth thing we see in this passage is that there's no room for pride in God's kingdom. Pride is a sneaky sin. Last week we talked about the kind of extreme end of pride, which is narcissism. But the truth is that pride is one of those things that can just sneak into our hearts without us realizing it. We can do that in all sorts of ways. Jerry Bridges, in his book, Respectable Sins, which is a phenomenal book, I'd highly recommend it. Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. He talks about the different forms that pride can take. He says we can be morally self-righteous, right? Like the Pharisee who prayed, God, thank you so much that I'm not like all those unrighteous heathen sinners, right? We can be morally self-righteous. Have pride in our own moral superiority, We don't want to be like that. We can also be doctrinally self-righteous, which is just exactly the kind of uh, attitude we just described a little bit ago. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Doesn't mean we don't have knowledge. We need to have a greater knowledge of God and who he is and his word, but that needs to lead to love. Otherwise, you just get puffed up, which leads to greater pride. We don't want to be doctrinally self-righteous. We can also be self-righteous in the pride of our accomplishments. Sometimes you look around and be like, yeah, I'm pretty amazing. Look at all the things that I've done. You're filled with pride. So how do we fight that attitude of pride? Well, first of all, we do it like Jesus the verse that Pastor David was just felt led to read in Philippians 2. We should consider others more significant than ourselves. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You need to be humble like Jesus. Humility doesn't mean hating yourself or hating who God made you to be. I heard a pastor say one time that humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I like that. In fact, if you get fixated so much on things you don't like about yourself, that actually in its, in its own weird way can actually be a form of pride because you're never thinking about anyone else. You're only thinking about you and the things that you feel like I should be this, but I'm not. You see how that can be pride as well? So humility is considering others like Jesus more significant than ourselves. And the way we do that is remembering who you are in Christ. C.S. Lewis says this in the book Mere Christianity. He says, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, 
And therefore, know yourself as nothing in comparison. You do not know God at all. He says this scary thought, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. C.S. Lewis just has this way with word pictures of like, man, if I'm looking down on people and thinking either I am so much better than them or I should be so much better than them, if you're always looking down on people, you cannot see the truth of who God is above you. So we need to be careful We don't let pride sneak into our hearts. And that leads us right to the fifth point that we see in the first 27 verses of Daniel chapter 4, which is that God gives grace to repent. Look at verse 27 again. Therefore, O king, after he tells him this dream, he says, this is what it means. This is what is going to happen to you. He says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. He says, if you turn to the Lord, you won't experience that judgment. Same thing reminds me of the book of Jonah going to Nineveh. He went to pronounce judgment on the people. And yet, If they turned, they would not experience that judgment, and they did turn to the Lord. And so in the same way, Daniel is calling Nebuchadnezzar to stop sinning and find the blessing of God. I said next week we're going to see it takes more than this dream to help him realize the error of his ways. But here we see Daniel giving him a warning sign. Telling him the dream means if he doesn't turn, he's going to be chopped down and humiliated. And what's amazing about Jesus, church, as we close with this, you always, 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 always have a chance to come and repent at the foot of the cross and ask his forgiveness. And if you come to him with a repentant and contrite and humble heart, he will never fail to forgive you. As long as there is breath in your lungs, you can go to the throne and you will find mercy and grace. Praise God. He doesn't have to do that, but he does. The story between this week and next week, our perfect illustration. Sometimes you're going to have to experience consequences earthly for your sin. And some of you might be living that right now. But that does not mean that it is too late to turn to Jesus and find forgiveness. What a Savior we serve. He disciplines those he loves. It doesn't feel good at the time. But it will reap a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. If you find yourself in that place right now, go to the Lord. Find his grace and mercy that have no end. Let's pray. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. There is no end to your mercy. In this story in Daniel chapter 4, you gave Nebuchadnezzar a warning sign, a reminder that the path that he was going down was going to lead to his humiliation if he didn't turn. Lord, sometimes 
Every single one of us makes a mess of our lives. And we need those kind of warning signs, which are your grace, that don't always feel good in the moment. But it is so much better than being unaware. So God, for every single one of us in this room, if there is something in our heart that we just need to turn and give to you, God, I pray that we would do that. We would find your grace as we repent, Lord, and give us humble hearts. Give us hearts that allow us to look up to you. See how much greater you are. And rest in that. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.